Good morning and welcome to Positively Politics, the show where we break down the sometimes complicated and often negative world of politics in a straightforward, unbiased, and academically rooted way. My name is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson. I'm an assistant professor here of political science at the University of Indianapolis, as well as the host of today's show. And I'd just like to say again, good morning to you all. I hope you had a fantastic Merry Christmas if you celebrate a happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa. Um, And if, if you celebrate none of those holidays, at least a very nice Sunday this past week. And I, I'll tell you, it's one of my favorite times of year. I have never in my 32 years of being on this earth and celebrating Christmases, of course, some of the early ones I don't remember, but nonetheless, never in my life have I experienced a white Christmas. So being here in central Indiana, um, waking up on Christmas morning and even Christmas Eve, I think it started to snow for us. I live on the south side of Indianapolis, and that was the greatest thrill to see that in the morning. So it was a wonderful time with family and friends, and um, I hope you had a fantastic holiday or at least a, a great week as well. I know sometimes this time of year is hard for people, and um, and so thinking of you if, if that is the case, but uh, because this is the last show before 2018. This is the very last of 2017. In fact, we only have two days left of this year. I guess a day and a half, really, by the time when you think about it, it's almost noon, right? But but nonetheless, I wanted to focus on kind of a summary and overall looking back at this year, um, what should have been, or at least could have been, a really boring, mundane <laughs> I don't know, like quite frankly, mediocre and average year. And in fact, was everything but that. Looking back at 2017, um, the best of, who were the highlights? Who were the winners? What were what were the most notable things politically that really happened this year? And I, I think I'm focusing on the best of, of course, there were a lot of negative things too. And no doubt, I could talk about those for far longer than half an hour. Uh, but first of all, this is positively politics, trying to put a positive spin on things. And secondly, I think there's more than enough negative news about politics that if, if you want to find that, you'll find it. I, I want to highlight the good things. And I think all of the opportunities that will come in 2018, politically speaking, as well as some of the really important accomplishments and some of the things that we saw coming out of 2017. And as I mentioned, this could have been a very boring year. Um, <laughs> I'm someone who loves campaigns and elections. That's what I focus on. And the year after an election is kind of a campaign hangover. A lot of times you're exhausted. I know I can be that way after um, covering an election and working on them and, and understanding everything that goes into the campaigning behind the scenes. A lot of times it feels like that hangover, that you're so tired and you're you're just sick of it. Then nothing seems that important relative to the actual vote and the election themselves. And and I think what's funny is how this could not have been a more different year. It could not have been opposite of exactly just that coming out of an election. And especially a kind of crazy election that we did see in 2016. Uh, but we, we saw so much in 2017 for a year that we had a few elections. I'm going to talk about them. Obviously, they were important. But in Indiana, not a single election for us in Indianapolis. We didn't have anything to vote for. And, and yet a lot of things important at the federal level 
at the state level, which I haven't spoken as much about recently, in part because everything has been relatively uh, tame, and, and then even at the local level as well. So if you're just joining us, this is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson on Positively Politics here on WICR 88.7 The Diamond. We're talking about the best of, and this is for the entire year 2017. Um, if you're of a certain age, <laughs> I don't know why people say it that way. If you were around my age and, and you grew up in the late 90s, early 2000s watching I think it was MTV or VH1. Honestly, I can't remember what station had it. But there was this show that said that was called Best Week Ever. And it would basically highlight the pop culture moments, um, things going on in Hollywood with celebrities over that past week. And so if you weren't living and breathing everything that was going on in social media, really pre-social media at this point, but everything that was going on celebrity-wise, it was a good wrap-up show. So I, I like to think of this as best of, you know, best week ever, best year ever for some people and for some organizations and some causes. And it really was just that. So the first thing I have to go to is for the parties. So looking at the national Democrats and Republicans, and I think in in their own special way, very different. So hear me out my analysis before you disagree. I know there's someone out there thinking that right now. Hear me out, please. But very different ways. Both the Democrats and the Republicans had a fantastic year. Certainly some downs, but I, I think they're ending on a high note. And with two days left in 2017, not a whole lot of time to, to really screw something up. So for the Democrats... When you look back at Doug Jones' win earlier this month on December 12th, you know, this is a Democrat from a very red state winning a seat that used to belong to Jeff Sessions that had not been won by a Democrat for years and years. And tipping the balance, now this is temporary and we have more Senate elections coming up next year, but unless tipping the balance just slightly in favor, and still Republican, but just a little bit more nudging towards Democrats. So where you had a 52-48 Republican majority in the Senate, now once Jones is inaugurated, should happen sometime in January, we're looking at a 51-49 balance. Republicans, still majority, but that's one, one fewer seat, one more in favor of Democrats. Now, I know I said this when we talked about Jones's election um, and his victory after it happened. This is not, I, in my opinion, this is not a sweeping mandate. <laughs> There's nothing in the literature. And I look through, you know, what we as a discipline in political science say, this is not the realignment election that is, that is going to change everything. I, I don't believe that. And I, I think we'd be wrong to give it that much weight, to interpret it in that way, because I, I don't think that's exactly what this is. But why do I say this is a win for Democrats? I think this gives Democrats at the national level and even Democrats who aren't voters in Alabama this this faith, this restored confidence that they have possibilities out there. The 2016 was a horrible year for the party. You know, they they came off bruised and battered and very hurt. And I think the thing with the Doug Jones win is yes, you were you were beating a not a strong Republican. Roy Moore is an incredibly flawed candidate. 
And more and more things came out about him as the campaign went on. You know, you had a lot of people within the Republican Party, including Mitch McConnell, saying, please drop out. We don't want to support you. You had the RNC at one point rescinding its support from Moore. And then with a week left to go, the president uh, throws his endorsement of Moore in there. And so the RNC then um, ultimately supports him. I understand Moore was not the impressive candidate to be. This was not putting your best up against your best, if we're being quite frank and honest. But again, I think this gives Democrats hope. And if you look at this coupled with earlier November elections, and none of these got the same amount of attention in a lot of ways, in part because they weren't for the Senate, because <laughs> we didn't have those elections this year. But if you look at Virginia, New Jersey, in terms of governor's races, even the Virginia um, State Assembly, you know, they, they don't call it a state assembly, They're, they consider themselves a commonwealth, but they are still a state. Uh, their legislature, the way those elections turned out, they, they showed a lot of promise and potential for the Democratic Party. And I'm a firm believer in a competitive two-party system. And one party should never have too much power, mean too much favor, but I don't worry about it because the way the partisan pendulum swings is anytime there's one year that's really great for one party, invariably they can't fulfill all their campaign promises. They can't do everything they wanted to do. That's, that's how politics works. Even the best intents, you know, the best intentions can't necessarily come through to fruition. And, and ultimately it'll swing back to the other party. And I think Democrats had a really rough 2016. 2018 may be better for them. I, I think it has a lot of potential. At looking at the Republican Party, I think this was a great year for them as well. And and not necessarily in terms of elections. Again, we didn't have a lot of them, and they didn't do this well, though they weren't they weren't favored to the way the elections turn out. But if I were to say anything about Congress in terms of their successes and the Republican Party in terms of their successes and even the Trump presidency in terms of their successes, the three-letter word, most important policy for them in 2017, and that is tax, the tax policy. Um, being able to push that through, um, getting something that all Republicans were invariably able to support enough Republicans, I should say, were able to support, you know, you didn't have bipartisanship. Um, they didn't need bipartisanship, but you didn't have it here. I think if they're planning on accomplishing anything else this next year for the end of the legislative session and realizing it is an election year, so you usually you aren't going to tackle the major political, uh, the major controversial things necessarily, uh, they're, they're going to probably need to engage in some bipartisanship. But for the Republicans to pass the sweeping tax overhaul, the first we've seen in decades since the Reagan administration, and knowing that tax policy is inherently complicated. If you had asked me a year ago, gosh, maybe not even a year ago, six months ago, but certainly a year ago, 12 months ago, if you said, what would be easier for the Republicans, health care or taxation, without batting an eyelash, without blinking, without even pausing to breathe, sometimes I forget to do, I would not have said tax. I, without a doubt, I would have said healthcare. Healthcare is much easier. And yet we saw beginning in March, continuing through the summer, again in the fall, healthcare was a real challenge for the Republican Party. They were able to get tax policy passed through. And so I, you know, I've, I hats off to the party for that. I do think for 2017, this is, this was their year to shine. They had the presidency. 
They have both houses of Congress. They have a 5-4 conservative Supreme Court. I I think they need to do a little bit more to remind voters why they selected them in the first place if they're going to maintain their power come 2018 elections. And that said, in, in terms of vulnerabilities, Republicans still have a strong lead. Um, there's obviously no presidential election. I don't see the House changing anytime soon until we've redistricted. And, and even then, there's that question mark. You're really looking at a couple Senate seats. But for at least for the Democrats um, and places that the Republicans, I am sure, are looking at, two seats that are now open in traditionally Republican states, the Democrats may try and flip. And that's because they're open seats. It's really difficult to beat incumbency advantage. It's estimated about 86 percent in the Senate. So 86 percent of the time, the incumbent wins re-election. It's, that's not even as high. It's in the 90s. I don't know the exact number for the House, but it's higher in the 90s um, for the House of Representatives. But nonetheless, if we're looking at places, open seats, where the Democrats may take heed and Republicans certainly want to control, you look to two Republican states, Arizona, Junior Senator Jeff Flake, who announced his resignation back in October. He will not be seeking re-election. And then Tennessee, uh, junior senator. A lot of times I want to call him senior senator. Uh, the senior is Lamar Alexander. But junior senator of Tennessee, Bob Corker, announced his resignation in September. And so at least two opportunities for the parties there. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson of Positivity Politics here on WICR 88.7 The Diamond. We're talking about the best of 2017. And already I've noted for the parties what I thought were the highlights for the Democrats and the Republicans, as well as I think the opportunities for them ahead looking at 2018. But I'd remiss if I just spoke about parties themselves. If we want to talk about some of the other things that were really important in terms of this year, without a doubt... The Me Too slash Harvey Weinstein, maybe it's the Harvey Weinstein backlash movement (laughs) and the Me Too movement. I'm not sure exactly how to phrase it. But in terms of the increased awareness and not just awareness, but actual response to sexual harassment and sexual assault allegations, uh, 2017 in the last few months saw a totally radical shift to the way that we approach understand and and ultimately interact with these kind of concepts with the with these sorts of behaviors no doubt and i said this a lot but no doubt sexual assault and sexual harassment has occurred for years and years and decades and centuries and generations etc it's nothing new but one of the things that was new especially in 2017 was the way that we as a society culturally the way that we were responding to these allegations and it it you saw for many people, Harvey Weinstein was the first. So I mentioned him as maybe the <laughs> the infamous name associated with the movement, so to speak. Um, but people say, well, that's just how it is. That's how it's been. Or, yeah, I knew that was happening. Everybody knew it was happening. This person was powerful. This person was in charge. We didn't think anything would change. And that was just, that seemed like traditionally to be the way that we as a culture and society handled these kinds of things where we just accept that sometimes bad things happen and people engage in bad behavior and that's how it is that's the reality and i i can tell you being raised as a young girl in the 90s and as a young woman in the 2000s and today 
that quite frankly, that was kind of the message that I got. That was the understanding I had was if something bad happened to you, you wouldn't expect, you know, in these kind of ways, don't expect repercussions. You live, you learn, you move on, and you, uh, you know, you try to avoid those kind of interactions in the future. But time and time again in the last few months, we saw powerful and, to my knowledge, exclusively men, but powerful person after powerful person, you know, be it in the media, be it in um, private sector, be it in public sector, although those always seem to take longer. Think of um, John Conyers, Roy Moore, uh, Al Franken, you know, any of the allegations for elected officials, in my opinion, were a little bit more disgraceful because they didn't instantly step down or they weren't instantly cut out. Look at Harvey Weinstein. I was just watching the other day a film from Weinstein Enterprises and I made a comment to my husband. I was like, oh, I wonder if they're going to take his name off of that, you know, because I, I knew right away. I was like, oh, I saw the the little pre-film image come up. And I was like, oh, must be Harvey Weinstein's film production. And my husband said, oh, no, they already did it. They, they've renamed it and everything. You know, we have a slower reaction in the public sector. And I, I find that to be disappointing, to say the least, because I, I hold our elected officials to very high regard. And, you know, in some ways, as voters, we are shareholders, you know, in some ways, we are the people that are paying their bills, quite literally, if you want to think in terms of taxes. But we're also the people that elect them, that put these them in these positions of power and who are ultimately represented by them. The thing I thought was really fascinating about the Me Too movement as a social movement was how it picked up so much traction and I, and I don't think this is just the Me Too movement. I don't think we radically changed our minds because of a hashtag circulating on social media. But because of a number of seismic shifts in our cultural values and the way we respond and see things, it, now, you know, if a woman or a man is sexually assaulted or harassed in the office place, these things are taken very seriously. And theoretically, legally, they should have been for quite some time. But we all know that that's not necessarily the case. And there were so many allegations that surfaced. And then they became not just allegations, but they had proof. And and you saw so many times where, yeah, it would be another person, you know, one more person that did something that they shouldn't have done. I'm glad we're holding people accountable in that way. Um, and I, I know I've heard some backlash where people say, oh, well, now you can just claim everything sexual assault or sexual harassment, which first of all is crazy, and I don't believe anyone truly believes that. I hope no one truly believes that. But also, if I, I always think about this in terms of tort reform. <laughs> and hear me out. Listen to this before you, you judge. But with tort reform, there's a part of me that thinks, yes, tort reform is a great idea. Let's cap joint and several liability. Let's say you can only get so much for reward. Um, let's say loser pays. All these things to prevent the proliferation of torts that has really backlogged our judicial system. I'm, I'm in favor of those ideas. And then you think, yeah, but what about that one person who's been wronged? And, and maybe they can't pay. They, they can't take the risk if you institute a loser pays law with regards to torts. And, you know, maybe joint and several liability in their case really is applicable. And so ending that would would be really harmful. It, 
you know, in those cases, that's what I think of for this. If you're doing what you should, if you're respecting people and valuing people, you're fine. There's no worries. And I'm glad that if you aren't, you will be held accountable. I do hope for 2018 that we do a better job of holding our elected officials accountable. And the easiest way to do this, numero uno way to do this in the American system is elections. <laughs> we give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Do we like them? Do we want to keep them in office? Or do we want somebody else in power? So I, I hope we do a better job of that. But as a social movement, I found that to be just really remarkable in terms of just changing our cultural dynamics and a lot of things that were probably already in play. But you really saw a major shift at the end of the year that I, I think anyone at the beginning of the year said, no, I can't imagine that that would have necessarily been the case. This is Dr. Laura Merrifield Wilson on Positively Politics here on WICR 88.7 The Diamond. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the best of, kind of like best week ever, if you're familiar with that show. This is best year ever, <laughs> so far at least. Looking back at 2017, the highlights, the winners, focusing on the positives, but I think there are plenty of positives to talk about. And so far we've talked about the parties, the highlights for the Democrats and the Republicans, also looking at, you know, going back to opportunities that they will have coming up in 2018. I talked about the social movement of Me Too and the way it used social media and um, and really focused on sexual harassment and sexual assault allegations um, and holding people accountable for their actions. Now, I don't want to spend all this time talking about federal government without getting a little bit closer to home. And the reality is, by the end of the year, because our state legislative session is the first three or four months, two, three months, depending on budget, non-budget year, happens January through the spring, it feels like the legislative session is so far away. But the reality is there were a lot of successes throughout the state this year. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget those. It's easy to not emphasize them as much and to focus on them as much because they don't get the certainly national news attention. It makes sense. This is Indiana. We're not necessarily going to get the national news attention. And they don't necessarily um, generate the same kind of buzz that you, you get at the federal level, which I think in some ways is disappointing and in other ways, is just typical Indiana politics. You know, when Indiana government is going well, when it's doing what it should, you don't hear a lot about it. <laughs> We're not the toot your horn kind of types. That's, that's not what a Hoosier is. That's not my, my impression of our culture. But if, if I were to describe to you, you know, what it is that makes Indiana unique— we're not New Yorkers, no offense to New Yorkers, nor are we Californians, and no offense to Californians, or any other state. That, that's not part of our persona, you know, I think as a state or as a people. Some of the things I thought were most successful this year, one thing that hasn't happened quite yet but may, nice little hint looking up to 2018, but is the alcohol sales, the Sunday sales for alcohol. You know, you had the Rickers moment where um, Jay Ricker wisely applied um, for two licenses um, for the Sheridan and Columbus stores. I think this is back in March uh, for liquor. And, and they technically qualify as restaurants according to the state of Indiana. They serve hot food and they have tables and chairs. He followed the rules. He applied for a license. He got a license. And then people said, oh, no, 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 that's not what we mean. Those are convenience stores. Those are gas stations. 
you know, it, the, ultimately they, they don't have the licenses right now, but that I think re, reinvigorated a conversation that seems to happen on an annual occurrence where we say, gosh, how come we're one of the few states that doesn't sell liquor on Sundays? And we talk about it right around this time of year <laughs> on the way up to the state legislative session. And then it gets really politically dicey. There are a lot of lobbies involved, uh, certainly a lot of different moneyed interest, and the conversation just dwindles down. And by the end of the legislative session, nothing has happened. I predict something different for this year. I really do think this could be the turning point. I know that they've had summer study sessions on this. I know a couple of people have been working on it. And I, when I think of it, you know, I, for me, it's not a moral issue per se. I'm, I don't personally drink right now, but um, when I think of Sunday alcohol sales, I, I do think of it from an economic perspective, you know, and I, I think that could be a unique opportunity and not unique in terms of special to Indiana because most other states do have this, but an opportunity that we're not currently using. You know, one of the things I wanted to point out was just generally the highs of the gubernatorial administration. And there's a small blemish in terms of uh, very recently. So the the child welfare system got a lot of attention, was it like a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago, um, because of this assessment of the welfare agency um, when ultimately their director, or I should say former director, Mary Beth Bonaventura, had stepped down and wrote a pretty, I don't know if scathing is the right word, but a very strongly worded resignation letter, um, really citing the administration saying that all they're concerned about is money and that they're not giving us enough. They're, they're cutting resources when we desperately need resources, and we're seeing an increase in terms of child welfare cases. And this all came out, like I say, a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago. It's shocking I think because that's the only shocking thing that has truly come out of state government, the certainly the Holcomb administration this year, where we've otherwise had an incredibly successful and impressive year. If you look at employment numbers, if you look at the budget, so many things at the state level are great. <laughs> there's, I don't want to say there's nothing to talk about. I love talking about great things. I, I think that's the best. We should reward and we should focus on uh, things that are going well. We should reward people that are doing them. Uh, but this did get a lot of attention. There were articles in the Chicago Tribune about this, for goodness sakes. And I, I think this is a blemish on an otherwise pretty impressive first year um, for Eric Holcomb's gubernatorial administration. One of the things that I hope is that this can be addressed. And I know that um, people in the Holcomb administration have said they're going to be looking at this. It's a challenge. I remember when he gave his State of the State address a week after the gubernatorial inauguration. And one of the things that he had discussed in the State of the State was the challenge of the opioid crisis. This was something that when Eric Holcomb was running, um, John Gregg was running, their their stances were incredibly similar. They had different ways to deal with it, certainly. But just the hard line they took on the opioid crisis and how they both recognized what a challenge it was, what a problem it was, and and how detrimental it could continue to be for our state and the communities within it. And I know that's a large part of the child welfare services problems right now, where you have an increase of heroin addicts. And, and people who can't take care of their children and shouldn't be taking care of their children. They, they need help, and, and, and then they should become good parents. But 
I, you know, that does put a strain on the system. I think that's something that as that's a reality for us in Indiana and across the country as we leave 2017 and come into 2018, that even though we've had these incredible successes, and I think politically this was a really fascinating year. <laughs> Sometimes it was entertaining. And I, I say that with a really weary voice. It was entertaining. Um, sometimes it was crazy. I, I think there were a lot of bright, positive lights. And a lot of times we don't focus on that, which is why I feel that today that was so important to discuss. It's easy to get caught up in the negative. And, and I think we need to be realistic. But I also feel that if you're just talking about how bad things are, you're never going to improve. You're never going to see the, the positives and, and the things that can become better. I'm always looking for opportunities. I'm always looking for possibilities. What can we change? You know, the the grave underbelly of a lot of the successes we've seen is that there are a lot of challenges and a lot of things that still still need to be addressed. So as I leave us here today, my hope for 2018 as we look into the new year and what to expect. First of all, I know this is going to be realized, but I'm hoping for really exciting elections for the congressional midterms. I have no doubt they will. Already, I'm most excited about the Indiana Senate race and and not even um, necessarily looking at Donnelly. Um, Unfortunately for him, I I think he'll be a fun candidate to look at come the general election, but really focused on the Republican primary. Um, with Rokita, Messer, Braun, uh, so many people um, interested in watching that race pan out. I think at the national level, there are some pretty exciting Senate races. There are also some interesting gubernatorial races. And then, of course, we have our state legislative races and three of the state executive offices. I don't know, filing deadline isn't coming up for a few weeks, so who knows exactly who's going to run. Nonetheless, I hope we have exciting elections. I hope we have an engaged population and we have people who are excited paying attention and if you're enraged if you're enthused I don't care I hope you are politically engaged and you're politically active and I hope that we can do our best to prepare the next generation of political leaders to becoming engaged politically active and also very aware of the responsibilities and and how important it is to serve in public office So I want to thank you for tuning in this morning. I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. For Positively Politics and WICR 88.7 The Diamond, this has been Dr. Laura Merrifield-Wilson. Have a fantastic new year, and I will talk to you next year and next week in 2018.